Happy Valentine's Day to all you lovers out there. Welcome to a very special V-Day episode of Not Another Horror Podcast. For those of you keeping count, this is Season 1, Episode 10. Yes, this is our 10th episode and you're still here, so I guess things are getting pretty serious. Now we're no strangers to talking about mental health on this show. This is something you might not have heard of. Erotomania. You see, erotomania in short is when you love someone and they don't know you exist. Literally, it's a condition where a person lives out a sort of fantasy in their head and everyone is destined to keep you guys apart. Now, in this age of social media where We always seem to be connected. It's easy to think you know someone. All it takes is a few taps on a screen or clicks of a mouse and you are that person's friend. And they have complete access to the daily happenings of your life. Well, tonight, let's take a walk. And let me fill you in on some of the worst publicized cases right after this hey there it's your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained anthony rosetti and i just want to have a quick heart to heart with you now you've probably been wanting to start your own podcast but can't seem to get the ball rolling or you just don't know where to start and trust me i get it there are a lot of options out there it's almost overload but today i'm going to tell you about the easiest way And it is to download the Anchor app or visit anchor.fm to start your own podcast stress-free. No complicated software or membership fees. It's all free. And they'll even distribute it for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even start earning money right now with no minimum listenership. Download the Anchor app to get started today. Now, let's get back to the show. Erotomania has showed up throughout history. Before we get into recent cases, let's take a trip back in time. I could tell you about how King George V had a woman from France who would stand outside Buckingham Palace and watch for the curtains to move. You see, she thought that was his way of talking to her. She even thought she was pregnant with his baby even though she never had sex with him. I mean, he was quite the looker, so I guess. (laughs) But maybe that's too far back. Let's aim our target at the 70s. A man named John Warncock Hinckley Jr. would have a severe case of erotomania. You see, John believed that Jodie Foster was in love with him. His obsession began in 1976 when he would see Jodie Foster in the movie Taxi. Now for those of you who have not seen the movie, let me give you a short summary. Disturbed protagonist Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro, plots to assassinate a presidential candidate. Now. Just keep that in your mind because it's going to be very important to the story. When Jodie Foster got accepted into Yale, 
She moved to New Haven, Connecticut. Hinkley also moved to New Haven, Connecticut. No, he did not get accepted into Yale, but he rented an apartment in the area. He lived there for just a short time to stalk her. There, he slipped poems and messages under Foster's door and repeatedly called and left her messages. And I can't even get a text back. Failing to develop any meaningful contact with the actress, Hinkley fantasized about conducting an aircraft jacking because why not? Then he thought about committing suicide in front of her to get her attention, which seems counterproductive to me, but whatever works for you, I guess. Eventually, he settled on a scheme to impress her by assassinating the president, thinking that by achieving a place in history, he would appeal to her as an equal. Because, you know, killer and actress, totally the same thing. Hinckley trailed President Jimmy Carter from state to state and was arrested in Nashville, Tennessee on a firearms charge. Penniless, he returned home. No, this did not stop him because he had a motive. Despite psychiatric treatment for depression, his mental health did not improve. He began to target the newly elected president, Ronald Reagan in 1981. For this purpose, he collected material on the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Hinckley wrote to Foster just before his attempt on Reagan's life. Over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters and love messages, and the faint hope that you could develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. The reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. On March 30th, 1981 at 2.27 p.m., Hinckley shot a revolver six times at Reagan as he left the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C. He was, of course, arrested, but Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He would then be transferred to the care of a psychiatric hospital. Soon after his trial, Hinckley wrote that the shooting was the greatest love offering in the history of the world and was disappointed that Foster did not reciprocate his love. He was released on September 10th, 2016. Since we're in the 80s now, let's take a look at another case. Let's talk about Peggy Ray. Margaret Mary Peggy Ray was the second of four children born to George and Loretta Ray in Illinois. She was a popular honor student at her community college, and after graduating in 1970, Ray briefly enrolled in a nursing program at Marquette University. She would later drop out during her sophomore year to marry her first husband, Gary Johansson. 
1982, Ray's marriage to Gary Johansson had ended in divorce. Her mental health continued to decline and her ex-husband was awarded custody of their four children. Sometime after her divorce, Ray married for a second time and had a fifth child, Alex, in 1984. Ray's friends and family attempted to get professional help, but Ray refused and would frequently disappear for months at a time. Ray lived a transient life and would often hitchhike across the United States. When she was not living at the homes of various friends and family members, she would live in Shantes. Around 1989, she relinquished custody of Alex to her mother. Ray first made the news in May 1988, when she was arrested at the Lincoln Tunnel for failing to pay the $3 toll. She was driving late-night talk show host David Letterman's Porsche, stolen from his driveway, with her three-year-old son, Alex. She claimed she was Letterman's wife and that her son was their child. Over the next several years, she was arrested a total of eight times for trespassing on Letterman's property and other related accounts. She claimed she left cookies and an empty Jack Daniels bottle in the foyer at Letterman's Connecticut home. At one point, she was found sleeping near a tennis court on Letterman's property. Ray's antics became a staple of supermarket tabloids, and Letterman himself publicly treated it as a joke. In 1993, before moving his late-night show to CBS, Letterman's top 10 things I have to do before I leave NBC included send change of address to that woman who broke into my house. Another witty jab occurred on Letterman's first show on CBS, where he joked that because of his being on the air an hour earlier every day, Ray was breaking into his house that much earlier than normal. However, in an interview with Barbara Walters, Letterman noted that he never mentioned Ray's name on the air and said that he had great compassion for her, often declining to press criminal charges against her. I wasn't comfortable with I wasn't comfortable with the humanity of that, he said. Ray eventually served a total of 34 months in jail and psychiatric hospitals for stalking Letterman. During her jail and hospital stays, Ray was prescribed antipsychotic drugs to treat her schizophrenia, which improved her condition. She would stop taking them after her release because she did not like the physical side effects, weight gain, and lethargy, and felt that she did not need the medication because she was not ill. After being released from jail in the early 1990s, Ray's attention shifted to astronaut Story Musgrave, to whom she wrote letters, made telephone calls, and sent packages. In 1994, she posed as a reporter and interviewed him at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. In September 1997, she showed up at his home in Osceola County, Florida. She claimed that she and Musgrave were writing a book together stating, I love Dr. Musgrave. I would die for him. He is a man of integrity and intelligence. Ray eventually served time in Florida jail for trespassing on Musgrave's property. 
On October 5, 1988, she committed suicide by kneeling on the tracks of the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad in front of an oncoming train. In a letter that she wrote to her mother, before her death, Ray said, I'm all traveled out. I chose a painless and instant way to end my life in the valley I loved. Ray's body was cremated and her family scattered her ashes in Needle Rock Natural Area near Crawford, Colorado. Letterman and Musgrave publicly expressed sympathy upon her death. Now, I guess you're starting to see a pattern here. The subjects always seem to be a celebrity. But I hate to break it to you. Your average day-to-day person can also be a victim. Let's talk about Gerald Atkins. In 1996, a Michigan man named Gerald Atkins was crazy about Deborah. To confirm their love, he bought Deborah an engagement ring. Atkins was confident they will marry and live happily together, but Deborah was unaware of Atkins' plans. In fact, she didn't even know his last name. The difference between misguided love and erotomania is that in the face of the evidence, you without a doubt believe that the other party loves you. The two met at a bar where Deborah made it clear she did not have any romantical interest in Atkins. In return, Atkins was convinced that everyone around them was interfering with their love, and this is the sole reason for her resistance. At the time, she was working in Ford Auto Plant in Wixome. Atkins' delusions convinced him that the Ford's political action committee and his workers were behind the conspiracy that ruled out the possibility of being with Deborah. So, he decided to massacre them. He broke into the auto plant and terrorized employees for five hours by firing hundreds of rounds. He killed the supervisor and wounded three other people, including two sheriff deputies. When police arrested Atkins and started the interrogation, it became clear he was an obsessive stalker, egocentric, and very paranoid. Talking to investigators, he confessed The conversation went like this. I met a woman I fell in love with and was it reciprocal? Yes, it was. The problem was she was not able to respond. There was fear on her part. She wasn't afraid of me. She was afraid of something else. Well, did you ever figure it out? Yes, I did. She was afraid of ranking file and for his political action committee. Was any of this meant to be a statement of your feelings for her, your love for her? A proof? Yes, it was. Deborah Myers announced that she did not know this man and wouldn't even call him an acquaintance. Atkins' defense attorney did not dispute he did the shooting but argued he was delusional. Jury rejected the insanity appeal 
and Atkins received life in prison without the possibility of parole. The mandatory sentence for murder in the state of Michigan. At the sentencing, he apologized to the kill plant manager's family but didn't accept the responsibility for the crime committed. Bloodshed may be needed to effect change was his response. Now here we are at the last story, one that might be the most famous in recent years, the Christina Grimmy case. Not much is known about Kevin Lobel other than he was completely obsessed with Christina Grimmy. In fact, he was so obsessed he had plastic surgery to make himself more attractive to her. Loibel, who worked at a Florida Best Buy, had a hair transplant laser guy surgery and even became a vegan in order to make himself more appealing to Grimmy. He also vowed to make the singer his wife. Lobo was not registered to vote and had almost no social media presence. His friend and co-worker Corey Dennington has some more things to say about him. He said that Kevin made it clear he watched everything having to do with her. And Loibel spent most of his waking hours either watching Grimmy's videos on YouTube or monitoring all her social media accounts, despite having none of his own. Loibel later told his friend that Grimmy's belief in Christianity had also made him believe in God. On June 10th, 2016, Christina Grimmy would unknowingly perform her last show. But the day before that, on June 9th at around 1.30 p.m., on that day, he called a cab. He arrived at the courtyard by Marriott on Magnolia Avenue in Orlando, paying his cab driver $200 for a round trip and settling into his room with $16 worth of food from the hotel snack bar. In the morning, he stuffed most of his belongings in his backpack and placed them in a safe beneath a television in the hotel room. He kept out both guns and the knife, tucking in his wallet and the concert ticket in his pocket. Kevin clipped two nylon gun holsters to the inside of the back of his jeans. He wrapped a cloth around his left ankle, then strapped the knife around it. He made his way over to the Plaza Live, stopping at a nearby Old Navy to buy a black hat and got in line. Teenage girls and their mothers had their purses checked, but he breezed through the entrance, passing a sign prohibiting firearms from the venue without so much as a side-eye. He picked a spot far from the stage, kept his head low, crossed his arms, and watched. As Christina's brother Mark sat behind the shirts at the merchandise table after the show, he spotted Kevin at the end of the line. He stuck out, appearing to be nearly double the age of the young teen fans. Christina never judged anyone, so it didn't matter what someone looked like or if they acted weirdly. She just had this way with people. Everyone loved her, and we literally never had a problem with a fan. Nothing, Mark said. 
As the last fan cleared, Kevin approached Christina. He didn't say anything, so Christina opened her arms for a hug. It was her trademark way to break the ice if she thought a fan was too shy to greet her. That's when he pulled out one of the guns and fired. The first shot echoed in the theater, and everybody looked around, thinking it was the workers popping balloons that had been released during the show. He would then take out the other gun and shoot himself in the head. Well, thanks for sticking with me this long. Erotomania is something that is odd, but if not taken seriously, is very deadly. The need to possess and conquer former lovers is a common theme in our society, and that's scary on its own. Did you know that one out of 12 American women will be stalked in their lifetime? If you think it's no big deal and nothing to worry about, think again. Stalking is a serious crime and is something to nip in the bud as soon as you recognize the behavior. If you think stalking is only in physical form, it's not. Now with all these forms of communication, stalking occurs through social media, texting, etc. Sorry to get all public service announcement on you, but it's something that I think is important. But please, don't let me ruin your Valentine's Day. As always, if you like the podcast, you can rate us on Podchaser and Apple Podcasts. Until next week, stay safe. Stay sane, and please make those profiles private.